If you've been with us, we're walking through the miracles of Christ. We'll take us right up to Easter, um, and uh, which is kind of appropriate because actually this is the last miracle this morning before we get into the last week of miracles and then miracles after the resurrection. So uh, it's kind of season-wise, everything worked out pretty well. Uh, we're looking this morning at a very familiar miracle, um, and yet it's one filled with a lot of problems, and we'll address those as we go. But um, the miracle is uh, the healing of blind uh, Bartimaeus, and uh, it's found where we're going to look at it is found in the Gospel of Mark. So let's read this story, and then let's talk a little bit about the problems, and then we will talk about uh, the application and, and walk through the story. So here's what it says, Mark chapter 10. It's also found, by the way, in Matthew and Luke, and that's some of the problems, so we'll talk about it. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is son of Timaeus. Bar means son of Timaeus, so son of Timaeus, that's what it means. Was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he is calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, actually it's Rabbani, and it does make a difference. I want to see Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. All right, that's the story. Let me give you a couple of problems. There are people who do not believe the Bible. They think that the Bible was written by a bunch of, of men, and so they have a very difficult time um, embracing the Bible as the Word of God, and I get that. I, I, I understand that. Um. Those people often, in, in trying to criticize the Bible, look for problems in the Bible where there's discrepancies. And this is one of their favorite stories, you should know, because there's some problems with this story, right? Um, here's, here, here are the two main problems. When Matthew tells this story, he says it's two blind men. When Luke and Mark tell the story, they talk about blind... Uh, Mark talks about one man, and specifically blind Bartimaeus, and Luke talks about a blind man. Matthew and uh, Matthew says that Jesus heals them while he's entering the city. And Luke and Mark say, um, did I get it backwards? As they were leaving the city. No, that's right. So, so one account is saying he's entering the city. The other account is saying he's so, so people who like to criticize the Bible kind of jump on these and go, see, the Bible contradicts itself. Um, so let me help you with a couple of those. And let me help you a little bit with the whole Bible-believing issue, just for a second. Um, first of all, the, the idea of one blind man versus two blind men. Okay? It's important to understand, Matthew says there's two blind men. Mark and Luke don't say that there's only one blind man. They just focus on one blind man. And Mark, even more specifically, focuses on the name of the blind man. So I, I don't see that as a big problem, you know. Um, you know, so, so they don't say to talk about both of them. They just talk about one of them. I don't see that as a, as a thing to throw out the Bible. Um, the other issue that's a little more complicated for some people is the idea of the entering and leaving, okay, where Matthew says, well, they were entering the city, and the other says they're leaving the city. There's a couple explanations. One explanation is that 
Um, there's actually two Jerichos. There's the old Jericho, the Jericho, the Old Testament that we know, you know, run around the walls seven times and they come tumbling down. Um, outside of that Jericho, not very far from that, just outside of that, a new Jericho had been built. That had been the Jericho of the New Testament. So some people go, well, he was like leaving the old Jericho and entering the new Jericho. And so, okay, maybe. I think it's an easy solution to me. Um, let me give you an illustration. I think it's a, it's a language problem. For us to, let's say this morning, <clears throat> I get here earlier than my wife, and so I get here, and I'm getting stuff ready, and I realize I got my Bible in the car. And so I go out, I walk out these doors to go get my Bible in my car, as my wife is walking in. And my wife, that's the first time we've seen each other that day, my wife hugs me and says, good morning, and kisses me. And I hug her back and kiss her, and then I go get my Bible, and I come back in. Here's a question. <clears throat> Did I see my wife that morning entering church or leaving church? And the answer would be yes. Both can be true. I don't have to exclude one for the other. Uh, you see this, Bible, Bible critics like the story of Zacchaeus for the same reason. Jesus sees Zacchaeus as he's leaving the city, but the next story is about Jesus eating in the city with Zacchaeus and his friends. Well, just because one is, you know, they can both be true. It's a language issue. So, you know, so technically, did I see my wife leaving church? Yes. But I also saw my wife entering church, you know, that morning. It, it, it both could be true. So I don't have to get all hung up on that. A lot of people get hung up on the Bible thing. Um, we talked about this a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night. Um, I, I tell you, throw up, guys, there's a chart. You see that white, that white clip art thing? Throw that up real quick. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Let me show you something. In, in Bible, we call this textual criticism. How do you handle the Bible? You know, people are like, yeah, the Bible is written by a bunch of men. It doesn't mean anything, that kind of thing. Um, here's just some history stuff. This is not Bible stuff. This is just history stuff. <coughs> um, the writings of Caesar were written about 144 B.C. Earliest copies we have are 900 A.D. And I know it's A.D. It's, it's not A.D. anymore, but it's B.C.E. and A.D. I know that. Um, thousand years between them, we have ten surviving manuscripts. <coughs> Herodotus' writings, 480 B.C., 900, 1300 years. We have eight of those. The Annals of Taxes, Roman historian, same time as Christ. <coughs> His writings, actually, we've got 20 manuscripts. Pliny's Natural History, seven. Homer's Iliad, the best-supported old document that we have in existence as far as writing and things like that. We have about 643 surviving manuscripts of that, that piece of work. Um, and that was even that was like 800 years before Christ. I mean, that was, that was, that was a waste before. So, you know, that's, that's substantial that we have that many. But notice when we get to the New Testament, um, we're looking at almost 5,366 pieces that we have. Look, you can say whatever you want about man wrote it, but there's something unique about that book that goes way past history. This isn't Bible. This is just history. Um, you, many of you know I'm a Shakespeare guy. Uh, Shakespeare's first folio was written in 1623. Do you know that within seven years, the manuscripts have been so corrupted they weren't sure Shakespeare wrote what Shakespeare wrote? You know that even to this day, the average Shakespeare, when they start comparing textual criticism and, and Shakespeare and things like that, do you know that the average, the average rate of mistakes in copies of, that, that we have of Shakespeare, which was written 1600, that wasn't that long ago in this kind of discussion. 1600, 1623, the number of errors in the, the writings of Shakespeare, average about 25 per page. 
You understand that when we take the number of omissions, errors, and things like that in the Bible, and we put these 5,000 5, pieces all together and everything else, the variations and everything else will fit on three eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. Now you say what you want. If you want to say a guy wrote it, okay. But you know what? There's something supernatural about the book. Throughout history, people have tried to destroy it, and it still exists. and exists in more copies now than we've ever had in the world. There's something unique about this thing. And that's from a historic, historical perspective. So, and I get textual, I get, I get why people criticize passages like Mark, because it's like, you know, oh, we've got it. That way we don't have to be accountable to it. Well, this is history, folks. You know, there's something unique about it. All right, I'm off that rabbit trail, back on. Um, it's just, this is a big, this is a big passage guys love to hang on to, and I want us to, so if somebody throws it at you, I want you to, to go. So, uh, go back to this text, go back to the text, guys. Um, uh, then they came to Jericho. All right, so let's stop here. Jericho. Um, Jericho is a very interesting city. Uh, throw up that map real quick. Uh, Jericho. If you'll notice it, Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, we are. Uh, I gotta get the numbers right. We're like six miles, I think, six miles north of the Dead Sea. Uh, where we get to? Yeah, six miles north of the Dead Sea, five miles west of the Jordan River. If you'll notice, from Jerusalem to Jericho ballpark. Um, 15 miles, so not that big a deal, um, even in this day. You know, the distance between, that's roughly the distance between here and Sioux City, uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem. Uh, again, this is one of those things Bible people go, oh, the Bible's wrong, because when you look at it on our map, Jericho's north of Jerusalem. And one of the passages says they went down to Jericho, and you go up to Jericho. Well, again, what you don't understand is Jerusalem sits 3,300 feet above in elevation, Jericho. No one goes up to Jericho from Jerusalem. You go down to Jericho. Um, it is down. Uh, but again, he, it, it happens in Jericho. You see how close it is to Jerusalem? Because here's why. In, in, a few, in, in the next story, they're heading to Jerusalem for the last week of, of the Passion Week before Easter. So we're real close. We're getting there. As they get closer, understand what's happening. More and more people are coming down. People are getting ready for Passover. Roman soldiers are starting to head that direction because Passover is a big deal. They want to keep the peace. Lots of people coming in. Um, this becomes a, and so when Jesus starts doing these things, they start having more and more impact because there's more and more people being affected. So uh, going back to the, oh, uh, throw, up, throw up the next couple of slides. Let me show you what Jericho looks like. Here, see the background? This is what's all around Jericho. Um, it's mountainous stuff, it's hilly stuff, it's brown. Everything is brown. Uh, I, this is what it looks like. I, I'll never forget, because we were driving through the mountains, from, and, and all of a sudden it's like brown, 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 and it's like this paradise in the middle of nowhere. Um, in fact, Herod is going to build a winter palace in Jericho by the time of Christ, because it is so lush, uh, beautiful green, beautiful everything. It's just an incredible, and again, you go south five, six miles, you have the Dead Sea. And it's dead because it's dead. I mean, there's just nothing there. So you can, ima you can imagine coming into this scene. Also, here's what you should know. There's a unique bush that grows in Jericho that at this time many believed uh, helped heal sight. So there were tremendous, there was a large amount, larger than normal amount of blind people that kind of came there. It's kind of like, uh, you know, 
Rochester. You would be amazed at Rochester, how many things there are dealing with sick people because of the hospital there. I mean, you know, so, you know, they have great big, huge stores. You know, I'll never forget when I was, I mean, when I was up there, I saw a store. It was the size of a Walmart for prosthetics. You know, and I'm thinking, I, you, the guy would go hungry in Sioux City, you know, um, but not there. Why? Because it attracts, you know, because of the, all that they do up there, it, 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 there's, a, there's a lot of business. In the same way, blind people and Jericho is a pretty common sight, all right? So anyway, going on, uh, back to my Bible passages, guys. Uh, thanks. Um, notice what happens. Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. So... Jesus and a large group of guys, I mean, he's got his disciples with him. People are starting to follow him. They're starting to be attracted to him. Jesus is walking out of the city, and it says, um, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. So this is a guy who doesn't have a way to support himself, and he is sitting there begging, asking for food, asking for money, um, sticking his hand out, you know, doing whatever he can to get attention, to get people to give him money. And notice what happened. Uh, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout. Uh, this guy starts to hear a, a large crowd coming, and he asks somebody, hey, what's going on? Well, this guy Jesus is walking by, and everybody's following him. This guy knows Jesus. This guy knows about Jesus. Um, this guy has some religious background somewhere in his history, because notice what he says. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, son of David is it's only a term used once here in Mark with this guy. Matthew uses it nine times because Matthew's writing to Jewish people. Son of David had religious, kingly, political implications. And so saying something like that this close to Passover, when Rome is starting to get some presence there because, you know, Rome is the power and you don't, you know, the one, the one thing is you don't, you don't threaten anything to Rome. And when you start going, son of David, David was a king. This is a big deal. And he cries out, have mercy on me, because he recognizes that this man Jesus walking by is no ordinary man. So he knows something about Jesus and his background. And he says, have mercy on me. And notice what happened. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Now again, put yourself in the scene. Here this guy is sitting in there, and he's sitting, and a crowd's walking by, what are the odds of this guy being seen? I mean, some of you are trying to go, you know, people in the back are going, I'm not even standing up. Um, you know, why? Because that's what he's doing, and he's got to get attention. And he cries out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And, and everybody's going, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. I don't know why. I don't know why they wanted to be quiet. I don't know if he was just making a scene. I don't know if they were worried about political implications. But they start, notice what he does. I love the guy. He just yells louder. Um, that's, what, that's what I do when you start to fall asleep. I just get louder. And he starts getting louder and louder and louder. Notice what it says. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Now, again, don't miss it. Jesus is walking out of the city. Everybody's following around him. Everybody's trying to get close. And all of a sudden, he stops. Um, the Forrest Gump movie. Remember when Forrest is running? And he's running, and he's running, and running, and everybody's following him, Forrest Gump. And then all of a sudden, Forrest stops. And everybody's like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? And he goes, I think, what's his line? I'm tired. I go home now. There you go. There you go. Yes, I go home now. You know, 
And everybody's like, and everybody's like, what do we do now? You know, everybody's just standing there on the bridge or wherever it was going, what do we do now, you know? Uh, it's kind of that scene. Jesus is walking along, and he stops, and everybody's like, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? And he says, calling. Now, this is unique because the last time Jesus said this was to Mary and, and the Martha scene where one of them is there, and he's talking to him, and he says, go get the other one. Call her. And so she goes and says, hey, he wants you. It's the same word. It's the same idea. So what happens is in the story, he says, he says, he says call him. So they call to the blind man. So they come over to this blind guy, and they go, hey, look, cheer up. Get on your feet, and um, he's calling you. In other words, hey, look, Jesus wants to see you. Okay, now this is where a story gets really cool, all right? And this is where the NIV does you a disservice, all right? Um, but here's what happens. Throwing his cloak aside. You see that little phrase? That doesn't mean much to you, does it? Okay, but think about it in this culture. His coat was everything. That was his bed. That's what he would sleep on at night. That's what, when it rained, he would wrap himself up in. He's blind. He doesn't have any place to go. This is what, when somebody gave him food, if it was a little too much, he would wrap it up in his coat so that no one else got it. This is his whole life, this coat, this cloak. This was everything. And it says he does what with it? He throws it aside. He's like, look, I don't know what Jesus is going to do, but here's what I know. I ain't going to be doing this anymore. Things are going to be different. Jesus wants to see me. It will be different. I'm okay. And I don't know if he was thinking of going back and getting it. Most of the time, you wouldn't go back and get it because somebody else would have taken it. You never left that. So it's this idea of he throws aside everything, and he goes to see Jesus. And then, notice what happens. What does Jesus say? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do? Now remember, he's blind and he's a beggar. We don't know what he's going to say. He could say, I need money for food. But notice what he says next. What does he say next? Rabbi. If you have many of your other versions, we'll say Rabbani. And that makes a huge, huge difference. The NIV translators thought they were helping you by translating it Rabbi. They didn't. Okay? And here's why. The word rabbinai, the word that's used here, is only used one other time in the New Testament. Rabbinai means my Lord, my Master, my Rabbi, my Savior. Here's where it is used. The only other time in the Bible it's used. Remember at the cross, Jesus gets buried. They put him in a tomb. He resurrects. The, on the day resurrection morning, Jesus is standing there. Mary's at the tomb. Mary's talking to the gardener, who's Jesus. And she says, just tell me where they put his body. I want to go take care of him. Please tell me where you've hit him and everything else. And if you remember the story, the gardener, Jesus, looks at her and uses her name. He calls her name. He says, Mary. And she recognizes at that moment, at the resurrection, that this is Jesus. You want to know what her next word is? Rabbanai. My Jesus, my Savior, my Master, my Lord, my Rabbi. This is personal, and this is as personal as it can get. And when Jesus looks at this blind guy and he says, what do you want me to do for you? This guy goes, Rabbanai. 
I want you. That's what I want. I want a relationship with you. It's about me and you. Yeah, I want to see, but seeing goes way beyond this idea of just simply physical sight. This is a guy who understands who Jesus is. He's already called him son of David. He's already cried out, Rabbi. This guy wants so much more than just to be able to see. And so, notice what happens. Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. The word healed is literally the word saved, solza. It's translated other places in the Bible, saved. Your faith has saved you. And it says immediately, um, um, the other writers um, talk about the idea that Jesus touched his eyes. Um, the other idea, writers talk about the idea that as a result of this, many followed him. They talk about this thing, but notice what it says. It says, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The other passages talk about there are a lot of other people that followed as well, glorifying God and, and, and add other elements to the story. But here's what I, here's what I would, don't want you to miss on this thing. Um, let me give you a little bit of outside background stuff that might help you too. Um, Mark is unique in that Mark tells us his name. And Mark is a writer who's very short, very concise. Mark doesn't give you details unless they're absolutely necessary. Later in church history, there's a guy by the name of Bartimaeus who shows up as an important player in church history. Many people believe that the reason Mark wrote his name in here is because the Bartimaeus, who plays a big role in church history a little bit later, after the resurrection, is this guy. And Mark is doing it for impact. He's saying, hey, you know Bartimaeus? You know that guy you heard preach two weeks ago? Let me tell you the story. And so they throw that element out of it. And so when it says, when it says here, your faith has healed you, immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. Um, okay, that's the story. Let's talk about some takeaways and some things maybe that, that, that help us. Two, two, two groups of people that, that I think we can, we can look at and we can address the story to. Okay? First group of people. There are some of you here that um, you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a Christian. Um, you don't get it, or some of you are in a process that you've started to be exposed to it, and you're exploring it, and you're thinking about it, and you're, you're wondering what it's all about, and you're trying to put all the pieces together. I think there's a lesson for you here. And then I think there's a lesson for those of us that are Christ followers that have put our faith and trust in Christ and, 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 and are trying to honor God with our lives. So let me deal with both groups, the, the other group first. One of the things that I think you see in this story for those of you who are considering following Christ is this. You need to understand this. It's an all-in kind of thing. When this guy, when Jesus calls him and says, look, I, I, I want you to come to me, this guy leaves it all. He wants nothing to do with his life as a beggar. He doesn't want his coat. He doesn't want anything that life represents. He is all in. He comes to Jesus and he figures, like, whatever his issues are, Jesus is going to take care of them. He has that kind of faith. There are people who think that Christianity is about adding to whatever your belief system is. It's not. It's an all-in kind of thing. Jesus didn't die on the cross so he could, we could add something to our belief system. Um, this is what Aaron and Lori deal with on a mission field quite a bit, is that with the Papatar people in Papua New Guinea, they have to explain to them that salvation is about Jesus and Jesus alone. Not Jesus in addition to all of your other beliefs. And they have to get them to understand that following Jesus is about turning your back on all of the other stuff and following Jesus alone. 
And I, I, would, I would challenge you to understand the idea that Jesus, following Jesus, becoming a disciple of Jesus, is an all-in kind of thing. It's not just a tack-it-on-to-whatever-you-believe kind of thing. And unfortunately, you have probably been exposed to people who have done that. And so your idea is that you don't want anything to do with it because you really haven't seen the genuine article. And, and, and I apologize for that. But there are people who are trying to be the real thing. Um, and, and what I would challenge you to do is to look at the claims of Christ and look at the idea that it's an all-in kind of thing. And when this guy walked away, I'm telling you, when this guy threw off his coat, he was all in. And notice where he leaves. He doesn't go back to get his coat. He follows Jesus from this point on. And if you follow out church history and you believe church history, not only does he follow Jesus, he becomes a preacher, pastor, evangelist, if you will, for Jesus, and a big player in the early church. If this is the Bartimaeus that, of church history. Um, and I think it is. So it's an all-in kind of thing. You need to understand that. You also need to understand this. It's about a personal relationship. I think too many times we try to tell people that Christianity is about what you do. You know what? I'm thrilled you're here today. I really am. It's like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. If all you do is hear, you'd have been better off staying in bed. Because hearing is not enough. You know, uh, you want me to prove it to you? I'm going to prove it to, to all of those of you who are married. Next time your wife asks you to do something, look at her and say, I heard you. Don't do anything. Just say, I heard you. Okay? Tell me how effective that is in your marriage. When from here on out, all you do is look at your spouse and go, look, honey, I heard you. And you don't do anything. Hey, the dishes need to be emptied out of the dishwasher. I heard you, baby. And don't do anything about it. Am I making my point? Okay, so here's my question. So, so if, if Christianity is about a relationship, it's about hearing and doing. And when this, when Jesus, that's what's amazing. When Jesus looks at this guy and says, what do you want? What do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. Tell me what you want. He doesn't say money. He doesn't say, give me sight. The first thing that he says is, my rabbi, I want a relationship with you. The sight thing, yes, but more importantly, I want you to be my rabbi and I. I want a relationship with you first. And Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about the stuff that we do. Yes, we do, but I don't do for the relationship. I do because of the relationship. And it is so important. You know, why do I go to church? I don't go to church because it's going to make me any better with God. I go to church because... I want to find out how I can follow God better. It's about me wanting to, to do better in my relationship with Him. Just like in my marriage. It's about me trying to make a better relationship by, by serving or, or loving my wife. You know, I don't do it because I'm married. I do it because of the relationship that I want with my wife. Does that make sense? And it's the same way with God. I... I I, I, I do the things that I do as a Christian because of my relationship with God. Not to gain me status with God. I've already got that. He's my Savior. He's my Rabbi. He's my Lord. He's my Master. I get that. 
it's about it's about what I am doing that way because of that relationship. And so many times, we unfortunately in church, we have made Christianity and church about what we do instead of who we are in Christ, first and foremost. So to those of you who are still struggling, that's, I, I would help you to understand that it's about a relationship, not religion. It's about an all-in kind of thing, not a just tacking Jesus onto your life kind of thing. The second group is those of us who are Christ followers. We have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and we have come to a point where we realize we are a sinner, we needed a Savior, and we, we, we put our trust in Christ, and we started that relationship. Kind of like when I made the decision to marry my wife. I stood in front of a group of people. I made a commitment before God. I made a commitment before them. I put a ring on her finger, and I said, I'm committed to you. I started the relationship with my wife on that, at that moment in marriage. In the same way, there's a time, for me as a person, I started my relationship with Jesus Christ. And for me, I was 16. Um, so that started my relationship. Here's what I think happens to us along the way. For a lot of us, when we put our faith and trust in Christ and we started that relationship, it was all about Jesus. We'd tell people about Jesus. We'd tell people about our salvation. We would tell people about what God had done for us. We, would, we were excited. You know, kind of like, you know... I don't want to embarrass them, but yeah, I'm going to embarrass them. Um, you know, it's kind of like Josh and Alex. You know, it's like every time we're around them, it's like, eh, 28 days, uh, 30 days. Uh. Okay. You know, and I mean, I, you know, I'm excited for them, but it's like, eh, we've been at this 30 plus years, you know. Um, you know, I mean, can you imagine me? And maybe it's a bad thing. You know, can you imagine, it's about genes, you know, like, you know. Anyway, I. That happens early in a relationship, and it happens early in our relationship with Christ. And do you remember when you were dating? Some of you are going to have to go way back. But do you remember when you were dating, and you would do whatever that person wanted to do because your goal was to make that person happy? You remember those days? Some of you are going, no, it's never like that. <laughs> Marriage counseling is available Monday through Friday. Uh, no, at some point, but I mean, you see what I'm saying? And you remember those points, and then what happened? At some point. At some point, and this is where marriages get in trouble, at some point it shifts. And it starts to become about me. And it starts to become about, you didn't do this for me. You're not doing this for me. You're not doing this for me. And at some point it shifts. And what happens when we start doing that in a relationship? We start building up resentment and walls and problems, and a relationship starts to suffer. And D, 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 you, everybody follow me? Or, am I, everybody going okay? Or some of you like, oh, no, 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 since we got married, it's just been nothing but roses and rainbows. Please talk to me. I want to meet one of you because um, you're from another planet. Um, but, I mean, really, you, you know what I'm talking about here, Okay. So that's the practical thing of marriage. I think the same thing happens with God. And here's my challenge to you. It's a little offbeat, but just hang on to me. If Jesus would come to you today and say the same thing he said to this blind guy, what do you want? What's your answer? See, because I think what happens is in our Christian life, it starts out being about Jesus, but then it shifts at some point to be about us. And so what happens is when events come into our lives, we interpret it in light of that. So in other words, 
we start struggling health-wise. And we say, now, God, if you really love me, you, you would heal me here. And when God doesn't do it the way we think it ought to be done, then we're upset with God. Because somewhere along the line, it became about us. When, when difficult times come into our lives, we start saying, well, God, did you really love me? Where are you? How come you're not doing this for me? Are you upset with me? We start making it all about us. Think of how, many of our, think of how much of our prayer life is about us being happier and things being easier and things being smoother. Can you imagine me going into my marriage and saying, okay, honey, new rules. It is all about my life being smooth from this point on. So if it doesn't make my life smooth and easy and happy, I ain't doing it. So you know what? Tomorrow, when you come home from work, it'll be smoother and easier for me and happier for me if I don't have to make supper. Because it's about me, honey. It's about what I need. It's about what I want. You go, I don't give your marriage too long when you start taking that attitude and approach to marriage. Your relationship with your wife is going to suffer, right or wrong. So what happens when we do that spiritually with God? What happens when our whole concept of God is, genie in the bottle, what's God going to do for me? Instead of, okay, God, I don't like what I'm, I, I'm experiencing. I, don't, I, I didn't sign up for this, but if this is the journey you have for me, help me to honor and glorify you through the whole thing. Because Jesus, it's not about me, it's about you. See, a great marriage happens when two people try to outlove and outserve each other. But when one person gets selfish, problems happen. In my relationship with God, it flourishes when I'm trying to outlove and outserve the things God's doing for me. When it's about Him as well, as, and He's trying to do all kinds of things for me. What's best for me? That spiritual relationship, that spiritual growth thrives. But the second I start making it about me, my relationship with God starts to suffer. Because now I don't view God as somebody who loves me. I don't view God as somebody who cares about me. My genie in the bottle isn't working anymore. And it's sad. But, I, you know, I started to question. This beggar, blind guy, who could have asked for anything, said, I want a relationship with you. I want to see. And by the way, the, the whole idea here of I want to see, we, we look at it and we go, okay, he just wanted his sight. No, 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 no. It's much more than that. This goes really, really deep. This is about seeing spiritually, physically, emotionally. This is deep when he says, I want to see it's about, I want a relationship with you. And I want to challenge those of you who are Christ followers to really think this thing through. Because I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in our Christian life that it's all about us being happy. And it's all about it being smooth for us. And it's all about making things easier for us. And the first time we're in pain, what do we do? God, make it go away. I'm getting radical here. 
But what if my prayer, instead of making it go away, is God, help me to honor and glorify you through it. If it's about me, I pray one way. If it's about him, I pray a different way. Am I making my point here for those of you that are seasoned Christians? My job in my relationship with God is to develop that deep relationship with God. And if he takes me on a journey or down a path that I'm really uncomfortable in, that's okay because my focus is him, not me. Does that make sense? And the thing that is encouraging me here and has for years is we have people here who have done that. And God has taken you on journeys that I could not imagine and journeys that I would never want to walk down. But I step back and I've watched you and I have seen you say, you know what? I'm asking God to take it away, but God has not chosen to do that, so I'm going to honor Him through it. And I've watched God use that in so many ways, and it is so encouraging to somebody like me. But I want to challenge you because that's real, real Christianity where it's about a relationship with God, not about an easy path for me. And when I signed up to be married to that woman, I know, I don't know. I was all in. And it's about being with her, whatever path, whatever journey God takes us down. I'm fortunate. I got a woman who also is trying to make my life better. And the sad thing is, when I was thinking of all the things that I could take away from her this week to be selfish, her list of what she does for me was a lot longer than my list of what I do for her. So that's why the only thing I really had was supper. Um, you know, um, you know, I'm sitting here going, oh, what else could I take away? No, okay, I can't make supper, that's it. And then I'm thinking, well, what if she did that? And then I've got her list, and I'm going, oh, no, no, this is losing. I'll make supper. I'll do supper, no problem. Because it's not about me. It's about me serving her. It's about her serving me. It's about us trying to outlove and outserve each other. And my Christian life is no different. It's about God showing his love to me every day, God serving me, God taking care of me, God doing things for me far beyond anything I ever deserve. And it's got to be about me doing the same thing for God and saying, God, I want to honor you in whatever situation comes down my road today. What do you want him to do for you this week? Does that answer reflect more about what you want or more about what he wants? I think that's a very penetrating question for those of us that are followers of Christ. So my challenge goes something like this. The focus of the passage is a challenge to make sure that we each possess a personal relationship with God. God wants all of us to trust him. And for those of you who are believers, what do you really want from God? You want a genie in a bottle? Or do you want a deep relationship with Jesus? where he uses your life to reflect his glory. Let's pray. Lord, use us. Lord, it's a dangerous prayer to pray. But for those of us who are followers, Lord, we decided a long time ago that we're all in. The Lord, it's not about our works. It's not about our stuff. It's about you. So, Lord, as difficult things come into our lives, I pray that you would help us to focus not on the circumstances and the situations, but instead on ways, Lord, to honor and glorify you. Or for others here who have
have not decided to follow you for whatever reason, Lord. They're, they're still seeking. They're still searching. They're, they're still exploring. They're still open. Lord, thanks for that attitude. But I just pray that you would help them to come to an understanding of who you really are and what you're really about. And Lord, for all of us this week, would you guide and direct? Would you use us? And when it's all said and done and we gather here next week, Lord, may you be honored and glorified with the things that we have done and the way we have lived our lives. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um, let's stand together and uh, we're going to